A wise critic once wrote, Life with illusion is unpardonable, and without it, unbearable. How do we make sense of the apparent illusions at the heart of society? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we explore illusion. Not the magician kind, but the deep-rooted, psychological human need for illusion. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Merlin Mowry. And I have to say, Dr. Mowry is just a delightful person, and it was such a pleasure to speak with her. She's a retired associate professor of social ethics in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Central Michigan University. Dr. Mowry is author of Death Anxiety and Religious Mystification in the Thought of Ernest Becker, A Feminist Reconsideration, a chapter of Death and Denial, Interdisciplinary Perspectives on the Legacy of Ernest Becker. Here's Dr. Mowry. Welcome, Dr. Mowry. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Very great to, great to have you here. When did you first read Ernest Becker and uh, what effect did it have on you? I first read Ernest Becker when I was in grad school. In fact, I was taking a course on the topic of evil. And I was really uh, impressed with his argument. And it seemed to me he said something uh, both very tragic but very true about human nature and how fear, fear of death, drives us to the kinds of aggression and violence that he terms evil. Uh, you once told us that ideas are tools to think with, a statement that stuck with me for a very long time after I heard it. Why is it important to keep that in mind when we're talking about this subject? I find in my teaching I say that to my students a lot because when you try to present uh, complex ideas that explain human experience, um, it's very easy simply to resist them because there is no set of ideas that's perfect and there's certainly no set of ideas that's complete. And there's just a tendency to examine ideas and theories with the goal of figuring out, is this right or is this wrong? And rather than taking that strategy, I try to get my students to look at a, at a set of ideas for their usefulness and their value. Ideas are tools to think with, and that means that a, a good idea will enable you to think things you haven't thought before, enable you to read something and see into it things that you would not have seen without that tool. So if we come up with a, a concept or an idea on the show, it's not the be-all and end-all, the last word, but it's, it's a theory, something to to work with, to get people thinking, to, to have some insight from. Right, and that's important to remember because it's too easy to feel like somebody's got an agenda to make you believe the ideas they try to, they're, they're explaining when what really the challenge is to simply see if you can understand them and if you can, what can you do with them? We're not proselytizing. No. Yeah. Made that clear in the last show. We, we have, tried. We have no agenda here except to expose people to new ideas. Could you tell us, at least in your interpretation, what does the title Denial of Death mean? Um, a lot of people, when they first see it or they first hear Becker's ideas and don't give much thought to what he said, they assume that Becker's suggesting that we don't really believe that we die. And since we have so many phrases talking about how, especially in adolescence, we believe we're invulnerable, a lot of people come to that conclusion. But that's really not what Becker is saying. The phrase denial of death is shorthand for a more complex and subtle idea. Becker is saying that anything that threatens our life or the meaningfulness of our lives, not just our, our survival, but the meaningfulness of our lives, fills us with anxiety and terror of death. And that's so profound an experience that a whole lot of, of human behavior, a whole lot of human action 
is geared towards learning to cope with, to control, and if possible, avoid that anxiety and terror. Now, Becker uses a, I guess it's a Freudian term, repression. Mm -hmm. What what is repression about? Repression has sort of, it is a Freudian term, but it's sort of made it into common vocabulary. So it's a, I, I think it's a, has become sort of a commonsensical word. Um, repression just means that there's certain kinds of things that we work to keep out of our conscious mind because they're too troubling or too difficult or, or too unmanageable. And the issue of repression comes up here for Becker because he believes that the facts of, of human existence, that we die and that we have a very difficult and, and mysterious task in trying to make, make a meaningful life and seeing, seeing ourselves and our lives as having meaning. Those, those tasks are so difficult that they can overwhelm us. And we have a tendency to not look them full in the face. We try to disguise them or to distort them or to, to simply ignore them. Repress them out of consciousness so that we don't live with that anxiety and terror at the forefront of consciousness. Becker says we couldn't function if we did. Many people are very put off by this subject. Talking might even think that talking about it the way we're talking about it right now is very off-putting. Is this going to be ultimately a positive thing we're going to get out of this discussion of all these very difficult topics that we're going to get into? You mean in terms of making sense of the power of death and death anxiety in human life? Yeah, and are we, are we going to come out the better for it on the other side? I think we will, but, there, but we have to take some steps to get there. Becker's ideas about the power of death anxiety do confront us with some of the worst things about human nature. But there's a very powerful sense of satisfaction in coming to understand ourselves more clearly or getting an idea that helps us explain mysterious things about human beings and human behavior. You're right in terms of people shying away from disturbing and upsetting topics. We all like good news better than bad news. But I'll tell you, when I'm sitting in the doctor's office, I would rather have a troubling but accurate diagnosis than some feel-good evasion. And I think we said we weren't trying to proselytize, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to do that. But I do think in Becker, you can find some ideas that help us see into some of the mysteries of human motives, human action, human desire. How did you first get interested in this subject that we're broaching here? The graduate school course in evil, although our topic wasn't death, Becker's notion of evil, is, as you both know, is very much tied up with death anxiety. But then I taught a course on death and dying. And a lot of people teach a course like that primarily looking at how people cope with death in their own lives. But I found Becker's ideas so provocative and exciting that I decided to use more of Be to use Becker in that class. And I actually picked escape from evil rather than denial of death. You know, one thing that occurred to me while we're talking is some people don't believe that there is an unconscious mind. Forget about repression. Mm -hmm. They don't even believe there's a subconscious or any of the, the, the Freudian things that we sort of take for granted. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I guess we have to, we just have to set that, that bar and say, well, there's certain things we're going to assume here. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, um, the human paradox that, that Becker talks about. On the one hand, people are animals. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we're symbolic creatures. On, mm -hmm. on the one hand, we're worm food. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're worms. And on the other hand, we're like gods, mm -hmm. small gods in nature. Does, does, that, does that relate to what, what we're talking about here? When we talk about the, the, the unconscious and the repression? Very much so. In fact, when... Becker talks about the paradox of human nature being 
a creature like all other animals, but being godlike in that we are symbol makers and meaning seekers. It's that conflict that arouses death anxiety in us. He says, you know, animals also are terrified when they're, they think their survival is at risk or, or they're vulnerable in some way. But the terror arises with the danger. And they have instincts. They're hardwired with particular responses to danger that enhance the likelihood that they'll survive. And they either succeed or fail. But if they succeed and the da- they, they avert the danger, the terror goes away. That isn't true for human beings. We don't have instincts. Instead, we have um, an intellect that is capable of self-consciousness and capable of, of symbol-making and imaginative leaps. But it enables us to, to see the human predicament in a way animals don't see ahead of time their predicament. Life and death are not ongoing problems in the life of an animal. Life and death both are problems in the life of a human being. We are living a life with the very same desire, most people believe, as animals have to preserve our lives, to live fully. But we know, as animals don't know, from a very early point, that that desire will ultimately be frustrated, that that there's nothing we can do to escape or evade our ultimate fate, which is the same as an animal's, to die. And that is... That's what arouses the anxiety, not just at a moment of death, but human beings live with that anxiety because they live with that knowledge. And that's why Becker says we've got to find some kind of tool to repress. In fact, he says something interesting. He says repression works for human beings the way instincts work for animals. And what he means is instincts enable animals to pay attention to just certain parts of their world and not others. They attentive to those elements of the world that bear the most on their survival, their needs for survival, and they ignore the rest. Outside my window, my cats are very attentive to the chipmunks and the birds. The chipmunks and the birds are not attentive to each other, but they are attentive to my cats. They figured out the cats don't go outside, so they're pretty bold, but they're always watchful. Instincts enable animals to pay attention to what they need to pay attention to to assure their survival. Well, repression, in a sense, does the same thing. It helps us block out those things that we can't deal with and focus on the kinds of things that we can deal with to make our lives manageable. How else would our ancestors have gotten through the Ice Age without repressing the awful conditions at times that they had to go through? You know, I I was thinking as, as we were talking about these topics... I was trying to think of some examples. Some people are are very resistant to notions of these psychic strategies we have that we aren't even aware of. But I think on an intuitive level, we all know we do those things. We all know that we look at things in particular ways to give them meanings that help us see our lives, ourselves as surviving, as meaningful, help us cope. I was thinking especially about a very poignant movie, um, It's a Beautiful Life. No, wait a minute. Life is beautiful. Which is it? Roberto Benigni's? Life is beautiful. Okay. And here we've got a very extreme story and a very fanciful one in some ways. But we have people living in a concentration camp in horrendous circumstances. And Benigni and his son are there. And that is a, a situation that Benigni feels like he cannot cope, or maybe worse, his son might not be able to cope. And he creates this comical world that is superimposed over the facts. And part of of the power of that movie um, 
had to do with the realization that the human imagination is capable of creating such meaning, even up against the horrendous. We have a powerful drive to create that kind of meaning, Becker says, not just in concentration camps, but throughout our lives in terms of the struggle to believe our lives can be meaningful despite the fact that we die. That's very powerful. That, that's one of the greatest things human beings do, is project something against a horror background like you just described. In there is, but it's a dangerous thing that we do, too, and it, it costs us that kind of repression. Becker says we use those repressions to provide those explanations I was talking about. Becker calls them illusions. And we, we can talk about that word a little further if you want to, because a lot of people object to it. He means, he means that we, we create explanations, meaningful explanations, to impose upon things, to make them manageable and understandable, and to enable them to give us a place, give us a way of interacting. Um, Are you talking about deranged people, people lying to themselves? Illusion sounds illusion like... Illusion has a bad connotation well, that's for most why, people. That's so why I think I was it's saying, important to make this distinction yeah, here. That's why I was saying we may want to say more about the word... Illusions. Illusions. People say, I don't have illusions. Yeah. I'm a realist. I live my life to that's the right. fullest and I live right in the face of it. That's and right. we're now suggesting that there's another... So there's another stage going on in the background. I think uh, Becker uses the word illusion more in keeping with his dramatic writing style than in strict keeping with the content of what he means. He does want to remind us that our illusions are not completely true, that they are distortions, they, that they block out certain things and exaggerate others to give us the meaning that we want to see. Human beings are meaning-making creatures, and we can't make sense of life without being such. But he wants to remind us that all of our efforts to do that are illusions. There's, they're, they're not just lies, and it's not simply that we just don't get it. And we aren't, those illusions aren't imposed upon us. We willingly seek them out because we seek out meaning. I want to go back to a point we were at before. He does talk about them as lies, but he calls them vital lies. And by vital, he means they are necessary for human life. We can't make sense of the bigness of the world, of all the possibilities that are out there for us. We can't, unlike animals with instincts, we don't know how we're supposed to behave in that world, and we have no confidence that what we, how we live and what we accomplish is ever going to mean anything. And so we fashion a way of making sense of the world that explains it, gives us a mode of activity that will enable us to participate and to contribute and to gain the respect, the, the acceptance, the respect of other people, and ultimately to see our lives, even if it is a finite life, as having a place within a meaningful context, and maybe even as we act in that context, giving us the opportunity to do something heroic, something special, to stand out in a kind of way that assures us that we have not only lived meaningfully, we've lived meaningfully enough that our contributions may outshine others and outlive even our own deaths. Well, very complicated. We talked with Dr. Sheldon Solomon. He, he was talking about the self as a mm -hmm. construct, self-esteem as a mm -hmm. construct, heroism. And so now we're talking about this process of illusion and repression mm -hmm. so that we're, we're expanding the whole idea that everything in terms of what we see in the world is is a construct, is an illusion of some kind. That's right. But let's look at some more commonsensical language. You're right that, that Becker's language can be off-putting, it can be inflammatory, and I think he kind of liked that. But that's 
fun. That's why he's fun to read too. That's true. He, makes he certainly makes you pay stage. attention. He certainly gets you going yeah. when you when you read him. We aren't so offended when we talk about a worldview of a particular culture. We aren't so offended when we talk about the perspective that people who have endured a certain kind of experience take. The idea of socialization doesn't offend us. But all three of those ideas convey the meaning that we have lived in a world and taken on its meanings as our own. Socialization is simply the story of how we learn to make our way in a culture, make sense of ourselves in terms of the language, the values, the goals, the ideals, the stereotypes, the preferences and priorities of that culture. We all do that. In the language of socialization, even if people don't agree with repression and the unconscious, I don't know anybody who wouldn't say we aren't socialized, we aren't shaped to live within a certain culture, use its language, its symbols, its meanings as a way of making sense of our lives. Becker isn't really saying something so totally different from that, but he's trying to remind us that there is danger here, that we can, we can take on those illusions, the, that worldview, we can be socialized and live within the world so comfortable with its meanings that we never ask the question, are these meanings really true? Are these meanings really of ultimate value? Might I have some other options in the way I live my life? Might I pick some other commitments? Might some other convictions enrich me and enable me to enrich others more than the hero system, the values, the priorities of the culture I live within? He's trying to remind us that through socialization, through living with illusions, we're giving up freedom. We're giving up opportunities to be, to live more fully, to express our uniqueness more authentically, to be more self-aware. We're talking about culture and the function of culture and That's right. different cultures do this to different degrees. So the answer is what's the best formula for, what would you say, liberating the human spirit to be as big and great as it can be? Well, Becker believes that all cultures give us illusions. All religions give us illusions. All political worldviews give us illusions. They, they're giving us worldviews, priorities, systems of meaning, interpretive schemas of meaning by which to live our lives. Although he believes that we all live with illusions, he doesn't believe that all illusions rob us of our freedom to the same extent. An we're, we're capable of living with more freedom to the degree that we are capable of coming to a higher level of self-consciousness, self-critique, self-awareness, self-expression. That's asking a lot because as soon as we begin to question the meanings of our culture, remember those meanings were supposed to silence our anxiety and terror. When we question them or lose confidence in them, our anxiety and our terror Start are on rise. the rise. We are most persuaded that our lot that we're safe, our lives are meaningful, we can cope with our own finitude when we're in a homogenous world where everyone believes the same, shares the same beliefs and affirms that way of of, of acting, believing, thinking, being. If you and I, you are behaving exactly as I am, you don't have to say a word to me. I perceive that as a yes vote an affirmation of me, and it reassures me. Your successes and your satisfaction reassure me that my life is meaningful. But is that a trade-off then? If you're in this homogenized, one-dimensional sort of culture where everyone believes the same thing, you have plenty of self-assurance. You've, you've, mm -hmm. you've got 
uh, all this support, mm -hmm. but do you have freedom? What What is freedom? The, you're, you're right, and a trade-off is a very good word. Eric Fromm in Escape from Freedom makes the point that you can either have security or you can have freedom, but you can't have both. What Becker's trying to say is our needs for security are so powerful, he doesn't believe that we can ever live with no illusions whatsoever. We can't tell the truth about life. We, we don't have, he, he also reminds us, we don't have the intellectual capacity to make sense of the world as a whole and all, all the possibilities it presents for us. We have to bite it off in, in sizes, in, in smaller sizes that we can manage. So this isn't just some immaturity or, or fear on our part. There are real limits to what human beings can make sense of. You wrote something like that in, in your article. Yes, you right? did. What was that, was that I'm, quote? About I'm, illusion? Yes, um, life with illusion is unmanageable. Unpardonable. unpardonable and without, and without it, it. Wait a second. Um, life with illusion is unpardonable and, and without, without it, it unbearable. unbearable. Thank yes. you. I like that quote. I, I got that quote years ago after seeing Jason Robards in A Touch of the Poet in Philadelphia. And the next morning, the theater critic was raving about the play. And he made the comment that at the core of the play was the tragic message that life with illusion is intolerable. Life with illusion is intolerable and without it unbearable. And he meant I've used that in my work on Becker, and I often use that in teaching Becker to get students to put those two things next next to each other. We could not bear the world. We could not bear the terror of our death. We could not bear the mystery and and open possibilities of a, a life we can make if we could not impose some kind of order, structure, manageable size on it, some intelligible way of believing we live in it in that world, in our lives, in our bodies, in our time, in such a way that we can make it count. So life would literally, Becker believes, be unbearable without those explanations. But Becker also agrees that life is intolerable with illusions because we give up our freedom. Now, he doesn't think we can avoid giving up some freedom. And so he, he tells us we should not be too derogatory we should not be too cynical, too condescending about the human need for illusion. But there is a big difference. There are ranges of freedom. A minute ago, I said we can, we can retrieve our freedom to the degree we're willing to develop our own critical self-consciousness. There are destructive illusions and there are benign illusions, and we have to concern ourselves with the destructive ones and well, avoid those. And using that language, it almost sounds like you're, you're speaking more about the way illusions and our anxiety regarding illusions can drive us to violence. In this case, I'm more trying to make the point that um, it's our own posture towards our illusions that makes the difference in our freedom. Becker does believe that we are capable of self-consciousness and self-critique. He believes we're capable of social critique. He believes that we're capable of, of withdrawing ourselves a little bit from our own social world and taking the options that other lifestyles, other worldviews might present. This is terrible. This is going to happen again. This happened with the last show, too. We've, we've run out of time. It's a fascinating discussion. I want it to go for an hour. But uh, it's going to go this much, and will you come back and talk with us again? I'd be glad to. That would be great. Our guest has been Dr. Merlin Mowry, Associate Professor of Social Ethics in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Central Michigan University. Merlin, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Thank you. You have been listening to an interview with Merlin Mowry talking about illusion, 
and the role it plays for all of us as individuals and a society. Steve, this has this has one of my favorite ideas, which is an idea about ideas. Merlin said, "Ideas are tools to think with." That that's we've talked about that so many times. That stuck with me really forever. From the minute she said it, I never forgot it. Ideas are tools to think with. So when you say, "Why would you yeah, want to get involved one. in an enterprise like the Hub for Important Ideas?" Well, because you can you can think better, maybe. So it's the reason why we read books, it's the reason why we watch documentaries, and it's the reason why we have conversations like these. Yeah. We're looking for new ideas to help us think through stuff. And Merlin gives us new ideas. Boy, does she ever. Steve, what, what's what's your takeaway from that? Well, I, I mean, I, obviously, I just love the, the whole idea of it, you know? Um, yeah. And it's yeah. it's kind of really at the heart of what we're about. We've been kicking this one around for a long time and i i just i couldn't agree more the other notion i i was struck with is becker's ideas about the power of death anxiety confront us with some of the worst things about human nature we all like good news better than bad news but if i'm sitting in the doctor's office i would rather have a troubling but accurate diagnosis than some feel-good evasion you gotta love merlin what do you think? Yeah. I mean, that and that, that example that she gave of being in a doctor's office and the thing that's hanging in the balance is your own health, that really brings it home. I mean, if you, if you don't want to hear an accurate assessment of the situation in that condition, then you're just, you're just living in fantasy land. And when I think about the response to climate change, the response to the pandemic lockdown where people are out protesting in the streets armed with, with assault rifles protesting in the street because they don't want their liberty taken away and you have to stop and say what what part of this don't you get is it that you just don't want it to be true and therefore it's not true you don't want climate change to be real therefore it's not real for you well that's just crazy talk that's a feel-good evasion and if you right. if you think you're going to undo the lockdown just because you want to go see a baseball game or you want to go to church and pray with the other parishioners, you're risking people's lives. You're risking yeah. your own life, but that's your business. You want to risk your own life, go right ahead. But you're risking people my age who are more vulnerable, people with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. And all all because- Like me. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, because you you want some feel-good evasion. Well, you know, that's great when you're eight years old, but, you know, grow up. And don't bring guns yeah. and don't bring guns with you to the to the demonstration. Anyway, so what's your other take on this? I would say the hardest thing she says uh, to deal with is she says we all live with illusions, mm. and that sounds simple until you start to examine your own views as illusions or part illusions. That's a complicated subject that is uncomfortable for a lot of people, and some of this just isn't for everybody. And I just say, go ahead. You don't need to. You don't need to think about this stuff. Mm. But if if you really want to drill down on human nature and what it is that's the mainspring that's got us ticking, you got to have a a good ability to handle difficult and uncomfortable psychological points of view, and that's certainly one of those not going to adequately cover all that today. No, we're not. And I think that it is a complex subject. It's a difficult one. But 
I think we all have to understand that you need illusions to survive. We need illusions to survive. We all need illusions to survive. So right. I shouldn't feel so – I shouldn't come down so hard on those people out protesting the lockdown because they can turn around and say, well, you have illusions too, pal, and they're, that would be 100% right. That's we right. all have we all have illusions. One of mine is that we're somehow as a society or as a as a species making progress and each generation is slightly better than the one before. Right. Well, there's no data to prove or even demonstrate that or validate that. Right. That's just an illusion on my part. That's just something I personally believe and hope is true and I'll never know the answer, but the but that is one that you live with because it gives you hope. It keeps you going, gets you out of bed in the morning. Yep. You say, you know, I'm doing this for the next generation, whatever it is. And you need that to keep going. Otherwise, you would be like what Sheldon says, you know, cowering in the corner, groping for a Valium the size of a Buick. <laughs> you, you need, right? right? You need illusions to keep going. Right. And, it, and yeah, they're essential. So anyway, you're right. We're not going to resolve this in this one conversation. It will come up again. We'll deal with it. What's coming next week, Steve? Yes, sir. Our next episode will feature Dr. Jerry Piven talking about violence and the prevalence in our society. That'll be a good one. Jerry is like no one else. Oh, my God, yeah. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us online at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you again. Thank you.